I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. As March draws to a close, we have one more chance to commemorate Women's History Month. We began with a three-part tribute to Constance Baker Motley, and last week we highlighted the first African-American woman judge in the nation, Jane Boland. This week we feature another outstanding lawyer, one whose significance is as spellbinding as is her name, Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander. Can you imagine such publicity being attached to a little thing like me? 1947 is best known in popular culture as the year Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. All across the country, fans got a chance to see up close and personal the dawn of a new era in the nation's pastime. But in that same year, in the nation's capital, history of another kind was taking place. The kind that would break down barriers in all walks of American life. The group resembled many of the others making their way toward the dining room at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. The men in their double-breasted suits and fedora hats. But there was one notable exception. Of all the darndest things, this lunch party included a Negro woman. As she made her way to the table amidst the astonished gazes and raised eyebrows, the waiter tried to physically block her from accompanying her white colleagues. And she testily raised the question whether the committee members could eat together. What she was referring to was the President's Committee on Civil Rights, to which she had been appointed by President Harry S. Truman just a few months ago on December 5, 1946. After she was seated, Charles Wilson, who was chair of the committee and also president of General Electric, looked at Sadie Alexander and exclaimed, I never thought this could happen to a woman like you. Indeed, Sadie Alexander was a highly accomplished woman. So much so that the next year in the second edition of its Negro Heroes comic book, the National Urban League named her Woman of the Year. And on the cover was Jackie Robinson. Sadie Tanner Moselle was born January 2nd, 1898 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She was the youngest of three children born to Aaron Albert Moselle II and Mary Louisa Tanner. When Sadie was two, the family moved to Washington, D.C., where she would graduate from the M Street School in 1915, and she returned to Philadelphia to attend the University of Pennsylvania. women on a full-time basis. I decided to take a course offered to men only. But when that professor came into the class, he chased us out saying that he did not care who gave us permission to attend. He would not teach a woman. Yes, those were rough times. 
She graduated Penn in 1918 and immediately began studying for her master's degree in economics. That December, she had her first brush with racial restrictions in a rather comical way. It involved Raymond Pace Alexander, who would later become her husband, and two other friends visiting from Cornell University. Raymond and the other man went to the Schubert Theater in downtown Philadelphia to purchase four tickets. When the four students got to the theater that evening, the young men presented their tickets to the manager, but he stopped them from entering, saying there had been some kind of mistake and that some other people had purchased the tickets for the same seats. Alex began excitedly talking in Spanish, and the other two chimed in with French phrases. After witnessing their foreign language proficiency, the theater manager said they were not Negroes and allowed them to enter. But once inside, the foursome looked over to the seats they had purchased and noticed that they were empty. After that incident, Raymond and Sadie made a vow. If we ever become lawyers, we're going to break this thing, segregation and discrimination. And yes, we are going to open up those restaurants too. You just wait. Just wait. The next year, she earned her master's degree in economics and immediately began setting about earning a doctorate in the same field of study. But there was a rather curious incident that took place as she was being considered for admission to the doctoral program. The trouble I had with the library. It seems that the librarian had told the committee, considering her application for a graduate fellowship, that Sadie had taken all the books off of a desk that had been assigned to another student. You see, there was another black woman in the graduate school, and as the saying goes, all Negroes look alike. I was shocked and told Professor Patterson that this story was just not true. My professors were heartsick and went to Dr. Jastrow, who had to admit that, having seen me again, I was not the person he suspected. Sadie did go on to receive the Francis Sargent Pepper Fellowship, and in 1921 earned her Ph.D. in economics from the University of Pennsylvania, making her the first black woman to earn that distinction. And it got a lot of attention in the newspapers, in Philadelphia, and all across the country. Can you imagine such publicity being attached to a little thing like me? But Sadie was not the first in her family to be first. Her father was the first black man to earn a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. An uncle would become the first black person to earn a medical degree from the university. And her aunt would become the first black woman to pass the Alabama State Medical Board. But after graduation, she had difficulty finding employment, however, and took a job at the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company in Durham, North Carolina. She stayed there until November of 1923, when she and Raymond Pace Alexander were married on Thanksgiving Day. Raymond had just graduated from Harvard Law School that previous June, and Mrs. Alexander moved back to Philadelphia. Well, I stayed home for one year and almost lost my mind. You know, in those days, it would have been impossible had I wanted to teach because blacks were not being hired for any high school positions and the only jobs available were in black elementary schools. So I decided to go to law school. She applied to the law school and was easily accepted, but her time as a student had its own unique set of challenges. No one invited me to lunch, neither the men or the women. 
I would go home directly at 12 noon when classes were over and study alone till about 6 p.m. I fortunately had a home and a husband who had recently graduated from law school with whom I could discuss cases. On weekends, I would go help in his office and learn to do things myself. Many answers to questions that came up on the bar exam were things I picked up from him. I didn't have time to be heard. Mrs. Alexander graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Law in 1927, and although she was a member of its prestigious law review, no firm other than her husband's would offer her employment. She worked at the law office of Raymond Pace Alexander, and just as they promised, they waged an all-out legal assault to rid Philadelphia of segregation in its parks, its restaurants, its schools, and its theaters. But her most significant contribution came in the integration of her two fields of study, economics and the law. Mrs. Alexander had always felt that all the economic and social substance had been squeezed out of legal education. Her critique of labor market discrimination tended to be directed at public entities, which she said had an obligation to be even-handed in the allocation of public resources. Having been professionally trained as a lawyer and an economist, Mrs. Alexander was able to communicate this with a clarity that few of her colleagues could match. Her work became a major asset to civil rights lawyers during the construction of the Hoover Dam project in 1933. It gave them the broader intellectual tools they needed to conduct a sharper critique on the New Deal labor market regulations which were having a discriminatory effect on black workers with private employers and labor unions. At its peak, the $48 million public works project employed more than 5,000 workers. Of that number, black men accounted for only 30 positions. In the fall of 1946, Mrs. Alexander received a telephone call from David Niles. Mr. Niles was an administrative assistant to President Harry Truman and was calling to tell her that the president was considering appointing her to a new committee on civil rights. In fact, the president had already made up his mind and on December 5th, it became official. Sadie T. Alexander would become one of two women to be appointed to the 15-person President's Committee on Civil Rights. The executive order creating the committee was clear. In it, it said the preservation of civil rights guaranteed by the Constitution were essential to the continued existence of our free institutions. It also called out those who took the law into their own hands and who wreaked personal vengeance, calling those acts subversive to our democratic system of law enforcement. The committee was to make recommendations to the president of what would be the most effective means of protecting the civil rights of the people of the United States. And during an address before the NAACP on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in June of the next year, the president was clear what he meant by the people of the United States. Recent events in the United States and abroad have made us realize that it is more important today than ever before to ensure that all Americans enjoy these rights.
When I say all Americans, I mean all Americans. Our immediate task is to remove the last remnants of the barriers which stand between millions of our citizens and their birthright. There is no justifiable reason for discrimination because of ancestry or religion or race or color. In December of 1947, the committee gave to the president its 178-page report entitled To Secure These Rights. In it, the committee recommended the establishment of a permanent Civil Rights Commission, a Civil Rights Division in the Department of Justice, federal protection from lynching, a permanent Fair Employment Practice Commission, a measure to abolish poll taxes, and stronger safeguards to protect the right to vote. The president would go on to issue two additional executive orders to advance the recommendations of the committee. One would desegregate the federal workforce, while the other would desegregate the armed forces. He would also later recommend to Congress measures that would fully implement the proposals made by his committee. Mrs. Alexander always regarded her service and contribution to the President's Committee on Civil Rights as one of the major highlights of her career. She continued to work with and alongside her husband in the law firm, sometimes even from a hospital bed where she gave birth to four premature babies, only two of which survived and who are still living today. She kept working in the firm even after Raymond's passing in 1974. I no longer work for money, just for something to awaken for in the morning. Everyone must feel important in life. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter named her chair of the White House Conference on Aging. She looked forward to the 50-year reunion of her 1927 law school class as well as her membership into the Philadelphia Bar Association 50-Year Club. In thinking about those two events, she would say, I have been granted a long life, more than three score and 10 years, and am more than grateful for having been happily married to a gentleman of rare grace and ability. I give thanks for the privilege of living to see my two daughters develop into gifted individuals making full use of their talents and for the opportunity to watch our grandchildren develop into promising individuals. The handicaps I have met while climbing the road to life are not to be compared with the blessings upon which I reflect in the evening of my life. Sadie Alexander died on November 1st, 1989. And in an interview a few years before her death, she was asked what advice she would give to young black men and women. Don't let anything stop you. There will be times when you'll be disappointed, but you can't stop. Make yourself the best that you can make out of what you are, the very best. Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander, a hidden legal figure that changed America.
on the next Hidden Legal Figures. Next week, we take a look at one of the most significant but little known cases in American legal history and show how one lawyer born in Georgia single-handedly ushered in protections for the rights of the accused. Between 1890 and 1906, the 15, 16 years leading up to this case, there were 2,200 lynchings that took place, most of them right here in the Deep South. Not a single individual, according to Tuskegee University, was prosecuted or jailed for participating in any one of those lynchings. Not a single individual. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court pointed out that a United States Senator from Mississippi kicked off his reelection campaign in May 1906 by leading a lynch mob into a jail and having two men killed. The Supreme Court believed that the rule of law was in danger in our country, in big parts of it. And this was their effort to do something about it. That and more will be part of our next episode. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.